Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. I don't know about you, but I'm one of those type of people that if I don't know why we're doing something, I kind of hate doing it, right? Like, have you ever been in this situation? Uh, It happens mostly in the TSA line. I just really don't understand it. Uh, You're walking through, and uh, they're kind of like, some airports are better or worse than others. Denver, they're actually pretty nice. Atlanta, as we all know, the absolute pinnacle, worst TSA agents ever. They're mad at you for being there, which I don't really understand, right? You know, you're trying to walk through, you're trying to do your thing. And me, I get kind of nervous about it, so I like prep, right? I've got the easy takeoff shoes. I've got the hoodie that's definitely not a jacket, so I can keep it on, right? So it's more sweater than hoodie, right? You got to hit that mark. If it's too heavy of a hoodie, then you got to take it off, right? You're like planning all of this stuff and prepping and everything. You got the laptop ready to go. I can kind of pull it out and put it in the tray. But you know, you walk up and they're like, you know, you walk up and you start taking out your laptop and they're like, nope, no laptops today. What's the matter with you? Or you keep your laptop in and they're like, nope, nope. What are you doing? You got to take your laptop out. Are you some sort of monster? Are you a terrorist? What's going on here, right? And then you keep walking through. You start taking off your shoes. They're like, keep your shoes on, sir. And you're like, every time for the past a thousand times I've fly, flown, I've taken my shoes off. Why today? I don't really understand why these rules are flexible, you know? Or like you walk in and they're like, sir, you don't have a gun? Go get a gun. Come back. Like that's what it feels like. Like the rules are just all over the place. And me, I, I'm talking a big game to you guys, but I, I'm scared, right? So I'm in the TSA and I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm sorry. How dare I take my shoes off? I know I was wrong, right? But the other day, I was flying, and I uh, walk up to the little, you know, assume the position place, you know, the little scanny circle thing, and I, like, walk up, and I'm like, okay, I'm ready, so the guy in front of me steps out, so I'm ready to go. I step in, I raise my hands, she's like, sir, get out, get out, go back, and apparently the guy in front of me had to go back into the little tube. They had to scan him again. I guess the, you know, touch wipe down thing wasn't working on him, right? So I go back out, and I stand there, and then he steps out, and then... He steps out and like starts getting patted down again, and they're like, all right, one goes out, one goes in, as if I was like behind, right? And I step in and I raise up my hands like this, and she sees that I have a bison belt. If you're familiar with the bison belt, it's one of my other travel hacks. I know that's why you came today. Uh, it has a plastic loop, right? And, and like it's like a vinyl belt with a plastic loop, so you don't have to take it off, right? But man, she sees that belt. We've already been in and out of this tube twice. She's like, no, sir, no, you need to go back to the back of the line. Of course, there's a million people trying to put their trays up to yank my belt off. And so I'm sitting there, and this is like, this is out of character for me. I go, why? She's like, no belts. And I say, oh, no, 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 it's it's plastic, it's all right. And she's like, no belts. And I'm like, no, 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 it's all right. I've been through a thousand airports with this belt on, no belts, right? So I ran through, I made it about to Terminal C before they caught me. No, I'm just kidding. I went and took my belt off, right? Like, that's all you can do. Anyway, I say all of that to say, I'm the type of person that I just, if I don't know why, it just eats at me, right? It just irks me. So today we're actually going to talk about something that I hope is going to sort of like answer that question for you at some level. And it's particularly around uh, the word evangelism. 
Now, you may have mixed feelings about the word evangelism. Uh, you may like it, you may not. In fact, a recent Barna study would suggest uh, that if you're in here right now and you would consider yourself a millennial or a Gen Z, that you probably have a negative association with that word. And even now, some of you are like, oh, he said the E word. Like, I don't want to talk about this. Uh, you're thinking, like, I wonder if he'll see me if I slip out the back. Well, the answer is yes. We're in a giant cavernous room. I will see you, uh, but that's okay. Uh, my opinion doesn't really matter. So, Today, what we're hopefully going to do is actually take a look at the why and see if that can actually explain a little bit to us why some of us might have some hesitations uh, with sharing the gospel with someone else. Today in our story, it sort of begins almost like uh, there's like this sort of transition kind of sentence. It's almost like a movie where they do a montage. So instead of showing you everything that Jesus was doing, uh, they kind of just cram it all into one sentence. It's like you see a movie and some guy's knocking on doors. You see him knock on the first one. Then they fast forward. You see a bunch of knocking on doors, knocking on doors, knocking on doors. And then you go to like the last one or something like that. So that's what verse 35 is, right? It says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So let's break that down just a little bit. Uh, first, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. He went where the people were. He was going to places where people naturally were. He was teaching in their synagogues. He taught them with authority in a place where people were already accustomed to listening. So he's going to places where people were already ready to talk about God because that's what they would regularly do in the synagogues, and that's where he was teaching them. Next, he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, this is kind of a tricky thing, especially if you've been in church a long time. This is like one of those kind of like cool churchy brain teaser kind of things. Because if you've been in church for a long time, you've probably been trained on how to share the gospel, right? And the gospel is very simply this, that mankind sinned, and so God sent Jesus, his son, to die on the cross for the sins of mankind that we might enjoy eternal life with him forever. That is not the same gospel that Jesus would have been sharing at this very moment, Right? Uh, primarily because I just used it all in past tense, and that wouldn't have happened yet, right? So Jesus was still alive. He hadn't died on the cross yet. So what does it say that he was sharing? He was sharing the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus here was sharing good news, which is what the word gospel literally translates to. He was sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. He was saying, hey, there is a better king here, and this is the beginning of a better and eternal kingdom. Now that would be ushered in by his death on the cross, so everything that you've probably thought of as like, here is what the gospel is before, uh, all of that, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, like all of that is how the gospel begins. But what Jesus here is saying is that the result of that is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is here. It is coming. The gospel for Jesus wasn't that he was going to die and come back. It's that death would begin his new kingdom a place where he was in charge, where justice and goodness would be the rule, and a place where people who failed at keeping his righteous law could actually find grace through his death, burial, and resurrection, right? Does that make sense? So you've got the kingdom of God. It starts with Jesus dying on the cross, and it comes to full fruition at the end of all time when Jesus comes back and sets everything to rights. So that is the good news that he was sharing. And he was healing every disease and every affliction. As he was going, he was going around healing the people around him, which we've talked about for the past couple of weeks. And all I want us really to see from that part of this sort of like montage is that when we want to know when the kingdom of God is breaking in on the kingdom of man, we'll notice it when people's lives start being transformed. When they're healed, maybe actually healed like some sort of miraculous intervention, 
Maybe when they're healed from diseases or afflictions. Maybe when brokenness is healed. Maybe when people are set free from their addictions. Like when those things start happening, accompanying with the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, that's when you know that the the kingdom of God is breaking in. So Jesus was actually saying, hey, the good news is that the kingdom of God is here. And then he was giving them just a little bit of a taste of it, healing every disease and every affliction. So that's what he was doing, but he noticed something while he was doing it. And we see that in verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd, helpless and harassed. Jesus looked at these people that he was going around among and he saw that they were in a bad way. And the interesting thing is they were probably like us. They didn't think necessarily that they were in a bad way. You know, if you walked around just thinking like, man, I'm helpless and harassed. I am like a sheep without a shepherd. Someone would probably diagnose you as depressed, right? We all have these moments where we think that, but we also have moments where we're like, hey, life is pretty good. I'm just living my life, doing my thing. It's happening, right? They were just living their lives too. And Jesus looked at them and he said, how sad is that? They were people just like you and me. They had jobs, they had lives. They were happy, they were sad, some of them were stronger than others, some of them were weaker than others, some of them had it together, some of them didn't, some of them had success in business, some of them had anxiety, some of them had splinters in their hands, some of them had bosses they liked, some of them had bosses they didn't like. They were just normal, average people like you and me. The fundamental nature of human beings has not changed all that much in 2,000 years. And Jesus looks at these people and has compassion over them. He didn't see all of the things that made up what we would say who we are, right? All the things that, you know, you might answer when someone says, like, well, well, who are you? What are you about? Jesus didn't see all of that. He looked past all of that, and he saw that they were harassed and helpless. They were sheep without a shepherd. They needed something. It makes me think about, I don't know if you guys ever do this. Maybe I'm just weird, but do you ever allow yourself to, like, actually try and feel for a person, especially for a stranger? Like, you ever just see somebody in life? And instead of your normal, like, oh, okay, yeah, that's just a normal person just doing their thing, you actually allow yourself to think through, like, what would it be like to be them? What is good? What is bad? What is hard? What is easy? Maybe it's at a stoplight where you see someone asking for money. Maybe it's at a coffee shop where you see somebody who seems like they're in a bad mood. And I do this all the time. Uh, it is my number one distraction from uh, doing Dwell Church work, actually. I work at a coffee shop nearby called Brew Culture. Sarah and I uh, went there on the second day of January because she was off of school. Evie was still in Georgia, and so we had like a little bit of spare time, and I don't know what it is. Uh, there's like a confluence of events that happen. Second day of January, a lot of people are off work. Uh, coffee shop, and we were there at about 10 o'clock. There were three first dates there. I kid you not, three first dates. And I know this because we've all seen it before. It's awkward. I'm sorry for you guys that are doing the first date game. It is awkward. There's no escape from it. So let me encourage you some to say, hey, it's just going to be weird, and you just lean into it. I'm also going to encourage you not to do it at a coffee shop. And I know that is controversial. This is the one point uh, where I'm going to put on my grumpy old man hat and be like, just go on a date, people. Get dressed up. Go to Gaetano's. Get some, like, Italian food and talk about your lives. The coffee shop, like, you're just saying, both of you are communicating to each other, I think you're a serial killer. That's the reason for the coffee shop, as I understand it. You're like, I'm 50-50 on you. might be a serial killer. Let's keep this low-key, right? Let's go to the coffee shop. Anyway. Don't take that as part of this sermon. That is just Josh's hot take on modern dating. And honestly, they didn't even have dating apps when I stopped dating, so I probably don't know anything. Anyway, 
this couple sits down beside us, right? Uh, they're at this chair or this uh, table that is mirroring Sarah and I's. And uh, I didn't know that they were on a first date at the beginning because it felt like an interview. It was just like rapid fire, bang, bang, boom. She was over there and she was like, well, you know, I grew up in D.C. And, uh, you know, I started this company back then when I was back there. And now I moved over and I started a company here, you know. And I was hanging out with one of my gal pals the other night. You know, us entrepreneur gals got to stick together, right? And she's just like rapid fire, boom, boom, boom. And then uh, he's talking to her and he's like one of those guys, like I'm sure you've met people like this, that it looks like they've like read a book on like how to talk to the humans, you know? So he's like sort of responding to her as she is listing out basically her resume and he's like, oh, that sounds interesting. That is good. I bet that was hard for you, right? Like he's doing like that whole thing. And I started like thinking about this, uh, and I promise, I, I hope nobody hears this as like uh, shaming single people. We love single people here at Dwell Church, uh, and I want you to know that I absolutely love the awkward first date kind of experiences that you get to have. They may be hard for you, but they're, they're fun for me, so bring them on, right? Like, I don't want you to think that I'm just looking at these people, and I like looked, and I go, oh man, they're harassed and helpless. How sad are they, right? But I did sit there and think, as they're talking to each other, I did sit there and think, like, how sad is it? Uh, that she felt like something had trained her in her life, something had happened to her. If this were lost, we'd see like a long flashback to find out why she occurred this way. Sorry, that's now an old joke. That was a TV show back in the day. I know most of you guys weren't born. I don't know. Anyway, um, how sad is it? That she was convinced somehow that the only way that she could like, you know, snag this man, uh, land this guy, was to like list out her accomplishments. Like, how sad of a world is it that someone would communicate to this seemingly nice, has-her-life-together young lady to think like, oh, I have to impress him with my successes if I am ever going to get him to date me again. That's kind of messed up, right? And it's just the nature of life. That guy didn't communicate that to her. It wasn't anything he did, right? And then I thought to myself, like, how sad is it? How hard is it for this guy? Like, if I'm sitting here thinking, like, wow, he's kind of awkward at this and he's saying awkward things, like, he knows it too, right? Like, he wasn't, like, completely out of touch so as not to know how awkward he is. He has to have felt it. He has to, like, kind of know it at some level. Man, how sad. How hard for them. And I hope you don't hear me like shaming these two random strangers that I meet in the coffee shop. I know this is happening to me. I spend enough time in that coffee shop to where I know there are people sitting around me like, oh my gosh, what is this guy about? What is he droning on and on about in some random meeting? They're like, ah oh, man, that Rayanna lady is not even listening to him. Will he please shut up, right? Like these are probably all the things that people are saying while I'm in the coffee shop. And the pr truth is that if anyone did this to us, they could probably find something exactly the same. Why does he feel like he needs to do that? Why has the world convinced him that that needs to be the way that he lives his life? Actually kind of makes me think about uh, my, my favorite comic book character is a guy named Daredevil. He has like these superhuman senses, but he can't see and they kind of got heightened because of that. And so he like does this thing where he like listens very actively and he has to sort of like sort through all the noise to hear. That's how he like finds out about crimes. I'm an adult, I promise. But uh, so he finds out about crimes this way and he does this thing where he like allows himself to listen. And the first time that he actually did it, he started hearing like everything that was going on within a three block radius, you know, and 
and he's like in uh, New York City, so there's like thousands of people living around him. And as he's hearing this, he's hearing like a broken bone. You know, somebody like falls down the stairs three blocks over. He's hearing his neighbor above him like crying by herself. He's hearing like some sort of domestic abuse situation happening like right around the corner. And it absolutely crushes him. Like the first thing, when he allows himself to actually feel and understand the humanity that is happening around him, it absolutely destroys him. And I feel like that's something like what Jesus is doing right here. He's actually looking at the people that he is serving around. He's seeing that they are harassed and helpless. They are sheep without a shepherd. Which if you know anything about sheep, that's not a sheep that's going to last very long. They need a shepherd to sort of guide them and take good care of them. Jesus looks at them and he feels sad for them. He sees that they need help. He has compassion over them. Should be a little bit encouraging if we can just sort of like take a little bit of a sideways jog here. And if you ever ask yourself if Jesus or if God cares about people or if he cares about you, look to this verse. He looks out over the crowds and he has compassion over them. That word compassion means that he felt something. In fact, ancient people, uh, 2,000 years ago, people living in the ancient Near East, uh, they actually thought that the center of your emotions, the center of your feelings was actually like in your guts, Right? Uh, and so this pet compassion word actually like comes from the word guts. It actually has its roots, and this is kind of graphic, but it has its roots in like entrails that would spill out. Like if you were doing a sacrifice, this is the other place where we've seen this word, and you cut open an animal and sort of like the insides all spill out. Like that's where this compassion thing rooted from. I know, they were pretty dumb. They didn't know emotions are in the heart, right? Yeah, dummies, right? How silly is that? Like, that's what I literally walked through, like, earlier in this week. I was like, man, I wish they were like modern people and understood where emotions come from. No. Anyway, uh, that's a whole other side note. He was feeling this deep down in his gut, which, if you think about it, is actually probably a better descriptor of where our emotions come from than our heart. I promise I'm not going to get into, like, probiotics here and talk about gut health again. Do you guys remember that? That was a while back. Anyway. Uh, I think, though, like, that's where you feel it, right? Like, you've ever felt, like, so bad for someone or even bad for yourself? Like, it comes right there in the gut. And Jesus here is experiencing that. Matthew is letting us know in this montage kind of section that that is where Jesus was feeling the pain for people that he saw around him. He felt compassion over them. And I believe when Jesus takes a look at our lives, that is the exact same compassion that he feels over you and me. So what happened as a result of this feeling? Here's sort of the last sentence from our passage today. Verse 37 and 38, it says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here are four things from this passage that, are, that will change the world. First off, the gospel is the work. The gospel is the work. Jesus sees the people that need this good news. He's going around. He's healing afflictions and diseases, and he's sharing the gospel of the kingdom. He's sharing the good news of the kingdom. And then he says, you know what the problem is, is that we need more people to join in this work. That's what all of this talk about, like, uh, harvest and laborers is all about. He's saying, like, these people are the harvest, 
They are the people that need this good news. And we need laborers out there to go and harvest what has grown. They are people that just need to be brought in, people that need to be given the truth and brought into the family of God. Sharing this gospel, giving this gospel to the people that need it is the work. That is the labor. Jesus here is saying that what you should do is pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest, which should show us the second thing that we need to know from this passage. The harvest is not the problem. You should notice that the harvest is not the issue here. He doesn't look at the harvest and be like, oh man, that's a weird harvest. He doesn't look at this group of people and be like, no man, that's a bad harvest. And maybe more like uh, important to us today, especially if you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus and you want to see people come to know Jesus, there's a real temptation for many of us to look out at people today, aka the harvest, and just be like, well, this is a weird harvest. This is a bad harvest. Jesus didn't have to deal with postmodernism like no 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 no. this harvest is too like progressive they'll never really get it or this harvest is like too conservative they're too backwards to really get it they're never going to understand this harvest is a bad harvest this harvest is too non-committal there's no way that they can experience the community of God this is a wicked harvest no in fact Jesus says that the harvest is actually God's did you catch that it says pray to the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest These are all God's people, people that he has created. So the problem there is not the harvest. The problem is the laborers. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are actually few. There's not enough of them. I believe this is a problem even in our time. Now, I believe that the church waxes and wanes over time. We see this throughout history, that sometimes it's expanding very rapidly. Sometimes it's contracting and getting smaller, and that happens for a number of different reasons. This passage should cause us to at least take a pause for a moment and ask ourselves the question, is the church in a series where it is, or in a, in a season where it's getting smaller or shrinking, not growing maybe, because we're too busy lamenting the people of these days or the harvest field instead of actually being willing to go out and do the work. If we took Jesus seriously here, then we would ask the question, we would stop asking the question, what's wrong with this harvest? And we'd start asking the question, why aren't there enough laborers? Why aren't we doing our part? Why aren't we willing to go out and share this good news? So, if you're asking that question with me, how do you add more laborers? Well, Jesus tells us, pray for them. It always struck me as odd that this is Jesus' response. One, because Jesus is God, so he's praying to his Father. He's saying that you guys should pray to God. And this is also the work that he is already doing, right? It kind of feels weird to pray to God for something that God wants and is already actively doing, but Jesus here tells us to do it. Secondly, it's weird because I thought the plan was always for his disciples to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, and so on and so forth. And that is what we have seen throughout the history of the church. In fact, in the very next chapter, if you're here next week, we're going to go into chapter 10, and Jesus is going to talk about sending out his 12 disciples so that they may continue on this kingdom work that he has enlisted them to. But simultaneously, as opposed to just sort of that, you know, pyramid structure of sending out disciples who make disciples, Jesus here is saying that we ought to be praying for laborers. This should show us something about the power of prayer. That over all of our schemes, over all of our plans, over all of our work even, Jesus is saying that we should pray to God to send more laborers. That this is an effective use and even the first and best use of our time. 
that Jesus, in fact, looks out at the harvest. He has compassion over them, and his first reaction is not to create a plan. His first reaction is not to just send out a million people. His first reaction is not to leverage his influence or anything like that. His first reaction is to say, hey, we ought to be praying for people to come to know the gospel. So we're going to do something a little bit weird. Let's actually take a second right now and actually do what Jesus says. Now, I know normally I just get up here and I talk forever about Jesus. We're actually going to do what he's calling us to do right now. So we're going to take a second just right now, and I want you to join me earnestly in praying for the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest. If it truly is the best and first use of our time and the way in which we are actually able to do the work of God by praying that he would send more laborers, then it is something that we ought to do and not just talk about. So I want to invite you to pray silently where you're at for just a moment, and then I will close us in this time of prayer. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.